podcast, Pamela Brunchick talks to Faye McMillan, the director of the Jurawang program at Charles Sturt University. What inspired you to pursue a career in academia? I don't think I was actually inspired. It was more an accident. So I call myself the accidental academic. Mm-hmm. It was really through my studies to become a pharmacist that put me on that path. Obviously, you know, to work in academia, you have to start by doing something as an undergraduate and working through. But certainly it wasn't something that I had thought of. And I really, even though going to university, I really didn't see it as a job or a career prospect for me moving forward. But I suppose the path had been started and then what opened up after that was very different to when I had actually started my undergrad journey into pharmacy. So, accidental academic. Now, you were the first Aboriginal registered pharmacist in Australia. How has this achievement shaped your career or helped shape it? Well, it was a pivotal, I suppose, moment in in shaping my career to what it is today. And and the reason I do say the first registered Aboriginal pharmacist in this country is that obviously Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and um, indeed First Nations peoples globally had been practising pharmacy for a very long time. And so it was a distinction between that uh, traditional medicines or complementary medicines and the fact that pharmacy is you know studied in a western way but it wasn't so when I started to study it wasn't known then how many Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people across the country had studied pharmacy so from the time I started I suppose to the time I finished that's when you know questions were being asked of well will you be the first and you know investigation um not by myself, but certainly by others, did bring to light that I was actually going to be the first pharmacist um, who is Aboriginal to become a registered pharmacist in this country. And as I said, it started that accidental academic journey. So being the first, there was the recognition that we actually do need to have more Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples teaching into the health disciplines and, you know, even in my pharmacy journey, the subject on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples was taught by a Maori academic and, you know, which highlighted the need. And as I said, so that started a path of is this something you're potentially interested in? And it wasn't, but it was something that I was keen to look to see whether it fit with me. And happy to say it has, it's not been an easy journey, yeah. but um, it's certainly been the catalyst to my career in academia. Um, but I still work as a community pharmacist. I still, you know, practice my skills and craft because I do think it's important to maintain that relevancy and that connection to um, teaching from an authentic place. And I can't do that if, you know, I'm at yeah. an arm's distance. So, It really has created that. But it also, whether I wanted to or not, became a role model or, you know, poster poster girl, Um, you know, for what could be imagined 
can become reality and that also was a struggle you know it was a challenge because obviously I'd started to study as a career for myself recognizing what I could see the contribution of pharmacy was to communities so I'd started work in my hometown of Trangi as a pharmacy assistant and so it was in those years of going to, well, distance, but through the vet sector to get dispensary assistant qualifications, that I could actually really see that, you know, being a pharmacist could be a very pivotal role, particularly in rural and remote um, communities across Australia where access to other health professionals isn't as easy. And so, you know, that's what drew me to it. And to be in service of others, I think, you know, when you look at many people in um, health industries, most of them start out with the desire to be in service to others. And that was what started it. And so it was very much an, an individual decision. But as it progressed, it actually became a lot more than just Um, myself there were other people who had investment in me being successful um, and you know creating that those future opportunities to try and attract more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples into pharmacy Um, and that's a challenge too so it's the path that the first the first step was taken on it was in that and you know I've welcome those challenges um I think you know it's contributed to who I am today and whilst you know that was a few decades ago I can still talk to that fear and anxiety of being a minority in a large group from a number of different reasons but challenges are there and what we do with them I suppose is the judgment of others and how we bring them about but I think I've risen to those challenges Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm quite happy to uh, look in the mirror and go, I've done what I can. That's a good segue to the next question. What are the unique challenges you have faced as an Aboriginal woman in forging your career? Um, It is complex, you know, in August the university celebrates Blue Stocking Week, um, which is a, the recognition of women in the early 19th century moving into the academic environment. You know, when you look around the globe, the employment of many women into academic environments really was still groundbreaking and recognising that, you know, women do still face challenges in the academic environment is a real critical factor. But then there's also um, being an Aboriginal woman that creates another set, the Black Lives Matter, I suppose, um, movement at the moment is is really that focal point of um, systemic institutionalised racism and how that is pervasive in our institutions and how it can be borne out. Uh, You know, you've got the gamut of, you know, those that are 
out and out racist and really yep. you know they are they are probably the, the easier ones to challenge but racism is still a very very big issue facing aboriginal and torres strait Islander people within the academy and also the representation most large organisations such as universities do have an Indigenous employment strategy and that's seeking to have parity with the community in which it's represented, so, you know, that around the 3%. And many universities are struggling with that academic yeah. um, contribution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander yeah. peoples. And, you know, it sits around that 1% of the overall academic population mm-hmm. as being Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander and it's not good enough mm-hmm. and we need to do more mm-hmm. to provide the opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as they come into university to see academia as a, as a genuine career prospect but also more than that that their value and contribution will be acknowledged and how that happens so you know apart from whatever degree they study you know they bring that skill set but they also then bring their skill set of lived experiences which changes I suppose the lens in which the universities see themselves but also the lens in which others see um, looking into the university with regards to respect of equity and respect for inclusion and that opportunity to create diversity within their workplace. So they're real things that are still very much a challenge. Um, Rewarding, obviously, you know, the rewards are definitely there. Graduation day for me is one of those moments in time that I like to hold dear. You know, unfortunately this year COVID will put paid to to that physical connection, that visceral connection to graduation ceremonies. But when you get to see other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on their graduation day and the pride that they have in their achievements to witness their family's pride, their community's pride, you know, that's the reward. That's the ultimate feeling, I suppose, that many academics hold to be their true reward for being part of this environment. But watching how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people define their own success is another reward. And, you know, that may mean that they start university, they mightn't finish, but for some that's enough. We need to stop defining success as being only this one level of achievement. So that's the reward is when I do also hear that people have been able to forge their own paths and it's taken many different shapes and forms and that I think that opportunity to say I've been successful is one of those great rewards. And the other two is being environment when you are in the true academic environment, which is being able to challenge, um, have some of those hard conversations. That is a, a real gift, but it also means that it's two faces to the coin. It's a reward, but it's also a challenge. Yeah. It's one of those things that I often speak about, brain-acquired head injury of repeatedly having difficult conversations. And as I said, it's that constant battle of beating your head against some things that are, are immovable. But as I said, 
the you know statements such as the behaviour you walk past is the behaviour you accept is something that I hold very true and so you know I won't walk past behaviours or comments how I address them will be nuanced to each environment sometimes it's a very public um, stoush with regards to I'm challenged as to why you think that but then sometimes it needs to be a very private conversation but that's where I see as I said challenges and rewards of being in this space are immense on both sides and it's finding that balance. Thank you. I don't know if we've already covered this but Perhaps we can add to it. What are the rewards and challenges for leading Indigenous engagement within a university? I think the engagement part is the telling of any institution's ability to lead in spaces. And so you have to have authentic engagement. It has to be meaningful. It can't be that skim the surface of, oh, we we consulted, which, you know, might mean we spoke to two people because that's the beauty of when you are in any relationship. And I think that's where I'd like to see it move beyond just the term of engagement that, you know, universities are in true relationships with um, the communities in which they, you know, have physical presences, but also the communities in which they serve when students um, become part of the alumni of these institutions, that we actually need to lead better. But often that leadership is not where people perceive it to be. You know, it's not your vice chancellors. It's it's not in those positions because you know, from a student and community perspective, they're not often the people that they do see. Yeah. So the leadership needs to be from all areas. You know, leading doesn't mean being out the front. It means having people willing to come on come on a journey with you, and that can often mean the academics that are responsible for the delivery of subjects, you know, it will mean the engagement with professional staff. They're, I think, the true leaders in our relationships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, but also in relationships to internal to our university communities that often, you know, middle management are the places where we can achieve the greatest runs. It's easy and nice to hear our vice-chancellors across institutions talking about reciprocity and being in relationships, but if that message isn't being felt, seen and heard uh, across the day-to-day, then it's a rhetoric and it then becomes yeah. a very difficult um, pill for people to swallow because just because the the big boss says this is so doesn't mean that this is. So I think they're the bits that, you know, we need to do better with regards to leading in this space and looking at changing engagement to being in genuine and authentic relationships. Do you think the rollout of telehealth will provide better health care to rural, remote and Indigenous communities? I think COVID has actually presented us with an opportunity to look at how we do this much better and the narrative we put behind telehealth and the value proposition that it can have 
for rural, regional and remote communities and the peoples that choose to be in those communities because it's not just a lifestyle choice. For many, it is truly a livelihood. It's those connections to country. It's those moments of going, we actually need people in all parts of this country to be contributing to our economy in meaningful ways. And in many rural, regional and remote communities, that's different to how it looks in urban communities. But just because it's different doesn't mean there's not value. So I do think the rollout of telehealth, particularly in this environment, has meant that the strengths of what telehealth can bring are being looked at and used as opposed to what are some of the barriers to telehealth. And there are still barriers to telehealth that we do need to overcome as a nation, particularly for remote communities with regards to access to creating those links using telehealth or you know, e-health and those sorts of things. So it's a great tool, but often if you don't have the padlock to the toolbox, it's something that you can't use. And so as there's the flip side, but I do, I believe that it genuinely can have very positive impacts um, for our communities and how we use it. And or sorry, not how we use it from a health service perspective, but how consumers and clients and patients use it. And that's, that's the critical part is getting that usability right from their end to be able to plug into the system. We recently conducted a survey of all board chairs across healthcare, universities and research institutes, the majority of whom said there was little Indigenous representation on their boards. Do you think there is a way we can at least start to improve this? I do. And again, this is a really complex um, environment because boards are there for multiple purposes and understanding what is the role of a board director is really critical in understanding the expectations of the individual. Having said that though, often boards need a a skills-based board and aren't looking for representation. It's looking at a skills matrix of of the skills of the directors and what they bring to the organisation's ability to deliver on its vision and its purpose. But I do think we have opportunities to give more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples learning to provide that space where positions do become available. You know, and in the last few years, we've actually seen some organisations go down the route of changing their constitution with regards to their board's makeup and including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a an essential part of their board. But again, that comes down to more community driven. You know, when you're talking about the ASX companies and, you know, large, large institutions such as healthcare providers, you know, universities and research institutes. It's a very, very difficult space for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to get into. But the other part, the flip side to that is that there are so few people that possess the skills and knowledge in those very specific areas that 
would also allow them to walk away and feel that they have had significant contribution rather than just a tokenistic approach to having people on the board. So it's it's not a one-size-fits-all, which I think goes back to what um, we frequently say to governments that are ultimately responsible for the funding of, of um, these boards that... We can't assume homogeneity exists because what we know is it doesn't. Whilst there may be similarities that can be drawn upon, we still need to be nuanced to be responding to um, the needs of those people who the services are done or are put forward. So, you know, healthcare, we need to make sure that people are skilled. The other part too, though, is the recognition that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples do bring not just their skill set of being Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and that's where on boards where the skills matrix is, is an important part. It actually becomes another tool in their repertoire to sit alongside of the others. And so if I use um, my own example of, of sitting on the Murrumbidgee Local Health District Board, now that's a state-based board and state-run, but there are very specific things that happen in the Murrumbidgee LHD that wouldn't happen in the Sydney LHD. But my appointment there was a recognition of my clinical skills as a pharmacist. It was the recognition of my skills having sat on previous boards, but also as an Aboriginal person that, and as a consumer who is Aboriginal of those services as well. So it's a multifaceted approach to board appointments that I do think really needs to be considered to ensure that the representation there is truly reflective of the people in which those boards are meant to be in service to. Thank you. Who or what has inspired you the most in your career? There's a number of different people and spaces. Uh, there's obviously the personal, you know, the amazing women that I've, I've had the privilege of growing up with in my life, in my grandmother, my mother. My siblings are all amazing people who I admire outside of being my sibling, you know, as, as individual people. But then there's also, you know, people inside these spaces that, you know, you look towards as, as if I can be similar, not the same, but if I can, you know, some of the traits that you see in aspirational role models that you go, okay, what is it about them that I am inspired by? Yes. And often it's kindness, often it's their humanistic approach. I think of Mark Burton, who um, was the Dean of the Faculty at Charles Sturt when I came to study pharmacy. His approach to genuine opportunities and how how are they given, I suppose, is, is one way. There are too many to mention, you know, professionally, but I think the ones that really do sustain me on a day-to-day -day basis are those personal inspirations and they cannot, they're not easily measured, but they are certainly truly valued. What are your top tips 
for aspiring leaders? Believe in yourself. Surround yourself with those that know have your bit that you know has your best interests at heart. That your success isn't going to frighten them, and you know try and change your trajectory. So know the people around you and put those systems in place is is a really thing. Know your own value proposition too. The last, I suppose, one of the things over the last five to 10 years that I've really learned is what's your elevator pitch? You know, what's your two-minute pitch that if you were able to stand in an elevator with one person that you think could truly contribute to your journey, what would that sound like and practice it? Amazing.